0: Generally speaking, we don't often see the results of our proclamation of the gospel. Sometimes for years even. Sometimes we never see the fruits of our labors. How many people have you witnessed to or prayed for? Maybe family members, for example. Only to see them go to the grave never having believed? Or how many of you have shared the gospel with your neighbors only to have them move away and you never know if they believed or not? And so whether I'm talking, whether we are talking about preaching to the assembly of the saints like I'm doing right now, or declaring the good news of Jesus Christ to your co-worker in the lunchroom, more often than not, it seems... You'll never know their ultimate response. And even if we do see an immediate response, and praise God when we do, even when we do see an immediate response, we all know that that generally there are ripple effects that may go on for generations. Let me tell you what I'm talking about. I'm going to tell you how you got your preacher. But let's start at the beginning in the book of Acts. In Acts one eight, Jesus essentially prophesies or really commands the spread of the gospel. He says in Acts one eight, "But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth." And of course, this began uh, to come true, really at the pouring out of the Holy Spirit at Pentecost in Acts chapter two, verses one through four. And then immediately, right in the next verse, in Acts chapter 2, verse 5, we read of devout men from all over who heard of the mighty works of God, Acts 2, 5 says. And as a result of their confusion, as a result of their questions, the apostle Peter stepped up to the plate and began boldly preaching the gospel. He would wind up doing that on several occasions in the first half of the book of Acts. So, for example, in Acts chapter 2, verse 36, he, he finishes his sermon by saying this. He says, Let all of the house of Israel therefore know for certain that God has made him Lord, both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you crucified. When they heard this, they were cut to the heart and said to Peter and to the rest of the apostles, Brothers, what shall we do? And Peter said to them, Repent and be baptized, every one of you. In the name of Jesus Christ, for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. And at that point, the story is still taking place in Jerusalem. But just as Jesus had said, the gospel would continue to spread, the church was continuing to grow, and as a result, so did persecution. Just remember the stoning of Stephen in Acts chapter 7. But persecution didn't destroy the church as her enemies were trying to do. It simply scattered the church. Acts chapter 8, verses 1 through 4 specifically point that out. And in their scattering, these early Christians were obedient to Jesus' command from chapter 1 to to make disciples, to be his witnesses, or even from Matthew chapter 28, to make disciples of all nations. So enter Philip and the Ethiopian in Acts chapter 8, verses 35 to 40. Remember, where Ethiopia is, it's at the end of the earth. But the story continued because God, in his sovereignty, chose to save Paul, who would become one of the greatest missionaries of all time, and he would use him to spread the gospel. And so when you pick up the story in Acts chapter 15, Paul and Barnabas end up splitting from each other and and heading out preaching the gospel, both of them. And that leads us to where we are now, Logansville, Ohio. Here's a very brief historical timeline. In 42 AD, Mark, the author of the Gospel according to Mark, goes to Egypt. In 49 AD, the Apostle Paul goes to Turkey. In 51 AD, Paul then heads to Greece, an incredibly important cultural and economic global center. In 52 AD, we believe that the Apostle Thomas went to India. In 54 A.D., Paul sets out on his third missionary journey, again through Turkey and Greece, followed a couple years later with a fourth trip, which took him at least to Rome, the capital of the Roman Empire. Possibly he even made it to Spain. That was his desire, although there's some doubt whether he actually made it there or not. In 174 A.D., the first Christians are reported in Austria. In 280 The first rural churches are founded in northern Italy. Up until that time, most of the churches were in the cities. By 350 A.D., 350 A.D., 53% of the Roman Empire confessed Christianity. It was so influential that the Emperor Constantine legalized the religion, even made it the state religion. In 432, St. Patrick went to Ireland to preach the gospel. We've given him his own day. The city of Chicago dyes the River Green for some reason. In 596, Gregory the Great sent a man named Augustine and a missions team to the nation of England. He settled in Canterbury, and it's said that within a year, they baptized 10,000 people. In 635, the first missionaries reached China. In the year 740, Irish monks with roots back to St. Patrick traveled to Iceland. In 900 A.D., missionaries made it to Norway. By the year 1200, the Bible has now been translated into 22 different languages. In 1498, the first Christians are reported in Kenya, Africa. In 1554, there are 1,500 Christians living in what is now known as Thailand. In 1620... Puritan pilgrims fleeing persecution in England established Plymouth Colony in what we now call Massachusetts. In 1743, David Brainerd begins his missionary work to the Native Americans in the vast interior of what will eventually become the United States. Mostly he was still in western Massachusetts at that point. Early in the month of March 1809, James Moore and Robert Dixon began, from the interior of the state of Kentucky, a long and tedious journey to Logan County, Ohio. Early in the summer of the year 1815, a circuit-riding preacher from a New Light Christian faith from Cane Ridge, Kentucky, came into a settlement in Logansville, Ohio, and announced a meeting at a farmhouse. By 1824, a regular church was established, and they met in a small log building. In 1876, a former structure that some of you remember because it sat right out there next to the parking lot, our old church building. In 1876, that was built, and by 1881, this church had called Thomas Hester to be its first regular minister. Jump forward now 100 years, mid-1980s, pastor of a small church in Epsom, New Hampshire by the name of John Spring, regularly and faithfully began preaching through books of the Bible, including John's Gospel. John's Gospel. At some point during this time, your preacher was convinced of his need for salvation. I repented of my sins and trusted in Christ for salvation. Probably in my early double digits, 10 or 11. I also met my wife during that time. In 1990, sensing the need for a larger meeting space, and in preparation for the present day, and probably what God will do yet in the future, this building was built. In September of 2001, Christine and I, along with six-month-old Zach and -and two-and-a-half-year-old Wes, moved to Xenia, Ohio, 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 whatever, where I would begin my studies at Cedarville University to be a history teacher. But as usual, God had other things in mind, and as I studied the Bible more and more, I became convinced that he was calling me into full-time pastoral ministry. In the year 2024, Logansville Community Church will celebrate its 200th anniversary. That's in 5 years. What caused the gospel to leave Jerusalem and spread through Turkey and Greece, Austria and England, Massachusetts and Kentucky and land here? Where has it gone for the last from here for the last 195 years? Or Maybe a better question we should ask, because that one's probably not answerable, at least not in this life, how has it gone from here? I can answer that. It has gone through the message proclaimed. It has gone through the gospel preached. For since in the wisdom of God, the world did not know God through wisdom, it pleased God through the folly of what we preach, of preaching to save those who believe. For Jews demand signs and Greeks seek wisdom, but we preach Christ crucified, stumbling block to the Jews, folly, foolishness to the Gentiles, but to those who are called, both Jews and Gentiles, Christ, the power of God and the wisdom of God. That statement there, 1 Corinthians chapter 1, it says that it pleased God through the the folly, the foolishness of preaching what we preach is what that means, to save those who believe. And in today's passage in John chapter 8, Jesus makes four specific statements that highlight for us the importance and the urgency of proclaiming the gospel of Jesus Christ. Let me give you all four statements and then we will read the passage um, so that you can see them as we work through this. But I need to be honest, we're only going to get through the first statement this morning. Uh, But here are the four statements. These are four statements that Jesus makes. You will see them as we read this. The first is, unless you believe, unless you believe, much to say, unless you believe, much to say, lifted up and believed in him. Those are four statements that are said. John actually adds the fourth one as a commentary. Unless you believe, much to say, lifted up and believed in him. John chapter 8, I'm going to read verses 21 to 30. John chapter 8, beginning in verse 21. So he said to them again, I am going away and you will seek me and you will die in your sin. Where I am going, you cannot come. So the Jews said, will he kill himself since he says where I am going, you cannot come? And he said to them, you are from below, I am from above. You are of this world, I am not of this world. I told you that you would die in your sins, for unless you believe that I am he, you will die in your sins. So they said to him, Who are you? Jesus said to them, Just what I have been telling you from the beginning. I have much to say about you and much to judge, but he who sent me is true, and I declare to the world what I have heard from him. They did not understand that he had been speaking to them about the Father. So Jesus said to them, When you have lifted up the Son of Man... Then you will know that I am he, and that I do nothing of my own authority, but I speak just as the Father taught me. And he who sent me is with me. He has not left me alone, for I always do the things that are pleasing to him. As he was saying these things, many believed in him. Let's just stop and pray. Lord, as we dig into your word this morning, We acknowledge that we are a needy people. That's why we pray, because we need Christ. And so, Lord, I pray that you would give us what we need this morning. Help us to see the truth. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Martin Luther um, described this passage here uh, as a dreadful sermon. Now, now, some might describe my sermons as dreadful, um, but probably in a different way. This is Jesus' sermon. See, in Luther's view, Jesus' sermon here was dreadful because Jesus describes his opponents, the Jews, the, uh, the Pharisees, as those who would seek him but would end up dying in their sin because he was going to go away. Luther will write this, he says, For when he goes away, then we will not know what God is, or what life, righteousness, and salvation are, or how to be redeemed from sin and death. Everything is gone with Christ. So for this section, if you've been with us the last several weeks, we've seen kind of a courtroom analogy going on here. We're going to kind of lay that aside, um, at least for today. We probably will pick it up again. But we're really going to focus on what truly is, what this truly is, really. This is a sermon. It's not really a courtroom uh, drama unfolding. This is really Jesus preaching to them. It is said that preachers should work to comfort the afflicted and afflict the comfortable. And really, that's what Jesus is doing here. Although he might be working a little bit harder at afflicting the comfortable. In fact, at this point, at this point in this interchange, this has been a long interchange, so beginning here in verse 21, Jesus takes the gloves off. And he again goes over, even as he kind of ramps it up a little bit, as he afflicts them, he again goes over some of the same themes that we've seen in the rest of the chapter. Themes like where he comes from and where he is going themes like who the Father is and who Jesus is. And then he flips those themes back to the Pharisees and he applies the opposite of all of that to them. He says that he is from above, but they are from below. They are from this world. He is not from this world. Where he goes, they cannot come. He even tells them again that God is his Father. And then he will say down in verse 44, a little bit later, you are of your Father, the devil your will is to do your Father's desires. He's flipping this all back on them. And you see that Jesus is afflicting the comfortable. He's taking his gloves off now and he's hitting them with bare knuckles. The bare knuckles of the gospel. <laughs> but he also says in here, unless you believe. That's an incredibly important statement. Unless you believe. So look again. We're just going to look at verses 21 to 24 I am going away, and you will seek me, and you will die in your sin. Where I'm going, you cannot come. So the Jews said, will he kill himself since he says, where I'm going, you cannot come? He said to them, you are from below, I am from above. You are of this world, I am not of this world. I told you that you would die in your sins, for unless you believe that I am he, you will die in your sins. This is some of the strongest language that Jesus has used so far in John's Gospel. He, he's no longer, at least for the moment, anyway. He, he's no longer making allusions to the Exodus as he's done over the, the past several chapters. He's not using kind of veiled prophetic languages. He's not a language. He's not. He's not speaking in 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 uh, metaphors. So there's clearly some prophecy going on here when he says you will die in your sin this is a straightforward warning and it is meant to get their attention he doesn't mean anything except what he says and he starts with that judgment there in verse 21 I'm going away and you'll seek me and you will die in your sin where I'm going you cannot come this judgment—it's kind of an interesting place for Jesus to start this kind of this next chapter of his argument. He says, "I'm going away." In John's Gospel, the, the verb "going" or, or "going away," when it's used about Jesus, it almost always refers to his death, which is ultimately, of course, tied to his asc- his resurrection and his ascension, where he will go in order to sit at the Father's right hand. So when he says, I'm going away, he means I'm going to the cross, then I'm going to resurrect, I'm going to come back again, and then I'm going to sit at the Father's right hand. He will say to them multiple times that he is returning to the Father's side. In other words, there will come a time, as he is saying here, there will come a time when he will not preach to them anymore, when he will not declare to them the truth. There will come a time when he will leave them to die in their sin. Sounds rather judgmental, doesn't it? But there will come a time when he will literally judge the quick and the dead. When he will pour out his wrath upon all those who have rejected him. It's only because of his great mercy that he didn't do that immediately following his resurrection. Or even before he ever went to the cross. It's only in his great mercy that he spared Noah when he judged the quick and the dead. It's only in his great mercy. The irony is that they wanted him to go away. And if he were dead, even better. They'd already been looking for ways to to kill him for quite a while now because they saw him as a threat to their power. The Pharisees saw Jesus as a threat to their power. Of course, it says here that they were wondering if he was going to go and commit suicide. This was unthinkable in the Jewish culture to the Jews. But that's not what he's talking about. That's why he tells him in verse 23 that they're, they're completely opposite of, of everything that he represents. No, you, you don't get it at all. You're coming from the, a completely opposite point of view. I'm from above. You're from below. You're from the world. I'm not from the world. But if they saw him as a threat to their power now, just wait. Because his going away... When he goes, he will display his power over them to an even greater extent. He gives them just a hint of this when he says to them, you will seek me and you will die in your sin. You will seek me and you will die in your sin. That's the power of judgment. Judgment. So whether we're talking about the judgment of of God, the Father, of the Son, of the Spirit, God has power over all men. God is the one who is ultimately sovereign. That's what he is telling them here. He is sovereign over all things, even salvation. You'll seek me and you'll die in your sin. There's more than a little irony in that statement, especially in this age of seeker sensitivity. Jesus says, you can seek me, But you're going to die in your sin. What's he talking about? Sometimes when we we talk about this whole concept of being sensitive to, to seekers, we kind of talk past each other. Jesus doesn't mean that these Pharisees will seek him personally and that he will reject them, he will not save them. In fact, these Pharisees, these men, they really won't seek him personally, they won't seek his salvation. In fact, when he is gone, they will do their best to spread rumors about his death. Matthew twenty-eight thirteen tells us that, that after his resurrection, when the empty tomb was discovered, these Pharisees instructed the guards to, it says, tell people his disciples came by night and stole him away while we were asleep. So they weren't seeking Jesus in a spiritual sense. Instead, what he means is that these Jewish leaders are going to continue to look for their Jewish Messiah, a Messiah of their own minds. They're going to continue to seek after God, but they're going to do that by following the law and the customs and wait for the Messiah that they just missed, the Messiah that they rejected because they don't understand. But it's not just that they missed the Messiah, we have to be clear about this. It's that they rejected him. They said, "No, you're not the Messiah. We're going to seek someone else." But Jesus said, "It's me. You're seeking me. You're looking for me." But because they don't believe in him, they will die in their sin. And and, and don't miss this detail. In verse 21, sin is singular. In verse 24, he uses the phrase again, but sins is plural there. The sin that condemns is the sin of unbelief. Now, that's not to say that other sin doesn't condemn. The wages of sin is death, all sin. But dying in your sin is dying without repentance. It is, it is dying with your sin unatoned for. It is dying and then facing the wrath and judgment of the holy God. We need to understand this. I want want you to understand this. All of your other sins can be covered by the blood of Christ. All of your other sins can be covered by the blood of Christ through repentance and faith. Now, I'm not a hyper-grace guy. I'm not saying that we should continue to sin that grace may abound, may it never be. What I am saying is that the one sin that will not be covered by God's grace is the sin of rejecting Jesus Christ. Let me give you an example so that you understand what I'm saying. Let's say that your sin is the sin of adultery. Not that you're guilty of just one sin, you're guilty of a multitude. But let's just say that your sin is the sin of adultery, or maybe even murder. Adultery is probably more common, even in this room. So let's just say that you're guilty of committing adultery. The Bible says in 1 John chapter 1 verse 9, if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. If you're guilty of that sin or whatever sin really turns your stomach or for that matter the ones that really don't upset you, if you're guilty of the sin of pride, for example, If you confess your sins, he is faithful and just to forgive you your sins and to cleanse you from all unrighteousness. All unrighteousness. Yet these Pharisees, because they would not confess their sin, because they would not repent of their unbelief, because they were guilty of the sin that leads only to death, because they rejected Jesus Christ, they will die in their sin. They will die in their rejection. Now, make no mistake, verse 22, when they respond to this, um, it isn't a simple misunderstanding. What they say in verse 22, will he kill himself since he says where I'm going and you can't come? When they said this, they were mocking and distorting his claims. They were trying to cause confusion in the crowd. Remember, they are in the temple. Verse 20 tells us that. They're trying to cause the people who are listening in to this interchange, they're trying to cause them to disbelieve. They're trying to lead the lost sheep of Israel astray. And in in the Jewish culture, a suicidal person was considered insane, crazy. They were trying to plant that seed in the minds of the people. He was a liar in the previous section. Now they want to paint him as a lunatic, as a crazy person. And in response, Jesus alludes to where all of this, all of this uh, uh, animosity and antagonism, uh, where all of their uh, strife with him comes from. It comes from below. It comes from this world, he says. Jesus and the Jews are from two totally different places. They are, in fact, as different as light and darkness. But even in their unbelief, he still offers them hope. He still displays his great mercy. Look again at verse 24. I told you that you would die in your sins. For unless you believe that I am he, you will die in your sins. He's calling them to repent and believe. Unless you believe, you'll die in your sins. I started by saying that Woven throughout this passage is this idea of the urgency of preaching. The urgency of of sharing, of telling, of proclaiming, of witnessing to the gospel of Jesus Christ. But this preaching will end, Jesus is saying. Now, proclaiming the glory of God will never end. We will do that for eternity in his presence. But the preaching that aims to, to convert, evangelistic preaching preaching that aims to transform, to edify, to sanctify, to strengthen. The preaching of comfort to the afflicted. The preaching that says to the believer, therefore lift up your drooping hands and strengthen your weak knees. The need for that preaching will end when faith becomes sight. As Paul will say to the Corinthians, for now we see in a mirror dimly, but then face to face. For I know in part, then I shall know fully, even as I have been fully known. This is what Jesus is saying. A time will come when you will no longer be able to hear the good news. And you will die in your sins. And the same is true for us. God, in His grace and in His mercy, gave us the great commission. Sent disciples to go and make disciples. Said, You will be my witnesses, not just in Jerusalem, but in Jerusalem and Judea, and even to the ends of the earth, so that the gospel would make its way to Logansville, Ohio, and to the ends of the earth from here. A time will come when we will no longer be able to hear the good news. And those who have rejected him will die in their sins. But again, this is where that hope and grace and mercy come in. In verse 24, unless you believe. Unbelief is the fountainhead of all sins. A a lack of belief is a lack of trust. It's a lack of faith. It's the serpent in the garden whispering in Eve's ear, did God really say And unbelief? And mistrust sets in. Jesus says, unless you believe that I am he. We've talked a little bit over the past weeks about Jesus' I am statements. He says, I am the bread of life. I am the light of the world. He's claiming in those statements the name of God for himself. And he's also claiming the attributes of God for himself. He's saying to them, I am the Son of God. I am the Messiah. I am the Christ, the Savior. Here in verse 24, when he says, unless you believe that I am he, he's making, it's kind of a more informal I am statement. It's more in line with, say, Isaiah 43 verse 25, which says this, I, I am He who blots out your transgressions for my own sake and I will not remember your sins. I, I am He, Jesus says. Unless you believe that I am He, you'll die in your sins. Jesus is the God who said that. God says in Isaiah 43, I am I am He who blots out your transgressions for my own sake and I will not remember your sins. Jesus is the God who has the authority given by His Father, sent by the Father to do that. To blot out your transgressions for His own sake. And He will not remember your sins. If you believe that He is the I am He... If you turn from your sin and turn to Christ, He is faithful and just to forgive you your sins and to cleanse you from all unrighteousness. But as they say, and as Jesus says to them here, He says, I'm going away. The time is almost over. The end is near. The author of Hebrews will quote the psalmist a few times. It's actually throughout Hebrews, especially chapters 4, 3, 4, and 5. It's a quote from the psalmist when he says, Today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts. Today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts. The Pharisees, as far as we know, most of them at least, hardened their hearts and they died in their sin as Jesus said that they would. But the glory and the mercy in this phrase, unless you believe, is that there is still more time to repent and believe. The Pharisees mocked him. They accused him of being a suicidal lunatic. What do you mean? Where are you going that we can't come? Later, Jesus would promise to return. And people will say, they still say all the time, maybe they have said to you, things like, oh, he said he's coming back. Where is he? They mock in their steadfast unbelief. Where is this God who said that he would return? It's been 2,000 years, time is up. Bad things keep happening. Where is this God? There's a reason that he has not yet returned. Peter tells us in Second Peter chapter three, verses three and four, he tells us very specifically. He says this, in verses three, and four scoffers will come in the last days with scoffing, following their own sinful desires. They will say, "Where is the promise of his coming?" For since the fathers fell asleep, since, since Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob fell asleep, since they died, all things are continuing as they were from the beginning of creation. The time is just going on and on and on. Where is this Jesus who promised to come back? And then in verses 8, 9, and 10, Peter continues with this. He says, but do not overlook this one fact, beloved, that with the Lord one day is as a thousand years, and a thousand years as one day. will end evangelism will end and you'll die in your sins unless you believe unless you believe unless you believe that it is christ alone who can say i i am he who blots out your transgressions for my own sake and i will not remember your sins today if you hear his voice do not harden your hearts you hear his voice do not harden your hearts because if we confess our sins he is faithful and he is just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness we will pick up the story there next week but today don't harden your hearts let's pray lord as we Think of this this mercy, of this phrase, unless you believe. That Jesus could have just simply said, You will die in your sin, but he showed them mercy. Even these men who would end up killing him, demanding his execution, his crucifixion, he would still show them mercy. So that even on the cross, even after saying this to them, even after saying, unless you believe, you will die in your sin, he would say, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. Lord, the mercy of Jesus Christ, help us not to forget that that he has shown to us his grace and his mercy, that you, through Jesus, have poured out your grace upon us, grace upon grace. Because apart from your grace, we would be steadfast in our unbelief. Help our unbelief, Lord, that your name might be praised.